Well, good morning. How are you doing? Yeah, good. It's almost the end of March. Anybody stay up late watching basketball last night? Okay, one, two, <laughs> three. There we go. I did. Well, not. I didn't make it till the end. I'm not gonna lie. I was too disappointed. I had Kansas winning everything, so. If you watched last night, you know that it was a bad night for me. Uh, oh, well. That's enough basketball, I know. I don't want to lose everybody in the room in one fell swoop. Uh, but yeah, it is a privilege to be able to be here. This is my first time preaching. Sarah preached, I think, about a year ago uh, here. So we're, we get to do this together, which is pretty great. We met at seminary, so we knew right away that uh, pastoring together was going to be a part of the deal. And uh, we're pretty happy with how that's worked out. So we've been uh, church planning in Providence uh, with the Vineyard for the past couple of years. So that's how we've really connected with you all uh, and uh, become good friends, I think, with Rob and Liz and have appreciated their support and encouragement over the past couple of years. And yeah, just grateful to get to drive up 45 minutes and hang out with some Vineyard friends for the day. So this morning, I thought I'd start off by talking about the season that most of the church throughout the world is participating in right now, Lent. You know what Lent is? We don't talk about it a lot in vineyard churches or kind of non-denominational churches. It's not, you know, we're not always the biggest on seasons of the church. Uh, the Catholic church and some of the uh, more liturgical churches are a little bit more focused on that. Um, but even if you don't know what Lent is, you probably know somebody that gave something up for Lent, right? If for no other reason than because they told you on Facebook. <laughs> People are very proud of what they give up for Lent, especially if it's Facebook, on Facebook. It's a very big part of this whole tradition. It's just, it's newer. You know, the Pope hasn't quite said that that's how it needs to be done, but it's getting close to that point, I think. So I've participated in Lent for the past few years in, in kind of the practice of giving up things. Has anybody else done that this year? Did anybody give anything up? A couple of people? Cool. I've given up the usual suspects. Uh, Facebook, I have done that, of course. Uh, I, I gave up TV one year, um, movies. Um, I think I gave up like eating out one year. I gave up coffee. Everybody does that. That's like a rite of passage if you're going to practice Lent, is to give up coffee. Just don't do what I did the following year. Giving up coffee was good enough that I thought that the next year I could just give up all types of caffeine. That was awful. <laughs> Truly horrendous. I gave up coffee, tea, soda, by the end of the 40 days, I was literally wondering if there was anything in life worth living for. <laughs> Lent is supposed to be a time of, you know, like self-examination and reflection. You don't want to go quite that deep when you're doing it, though. A little bit further than is healthy. So I wouldn't recommend that one. This year I went a little easier than, than that deep dark hole. And I've restricted my cell phone usage, which I did feel like I was like a parent with a 14-year-old, like I need to cut back a little bit. But I also realized that, like many of us here, I'm sure, 
that I spend a ridiculous amount of time on my phone. I play games, I read articles, I check Facebook when I don't have to. I'm a big sports fan, as evidenced by last night, so I check everything that I possibly can on sports on my phone. So I realized if I cut out some of that, I would probably create an hour to two hours a day of free time. Just think about that. If you, like me, have a cell phone addiction, think how much time you could create by not looking at it quite as much. I'm not even saying to throw it in a shelf for the whole 40 days. Just cut it back a little bit. And I did it just to kind of embrace the, the um, kind of underlying uh, ideal of giving up for Lent. That you want to give up something, but that you also want to create time for Jesus. That's why we do these things. It's not just so you can say you gave something up, but it's so that you can create more space to be able to engage with Jesus. Lent may not seem like much more than just giving up Facebook or eating fish sandwiches at McDonald's on Friday or going to the local fish fry if you didn't grow up around it. But that is kind of the, the key component of it, is it's a time for us to be able to give up and to anticipate to give up good things in our lives, and to anticipate the best, to anticipate the gifts that Jesus has given to us, to look ahead to Easter and to see the gift that he is kind of year, every year that we, we look forward to, to remembering his life, death, and resurrection. Things that we're, we're not giving up things that are bad, we're just giving up things that aren't the best so we can focus on the best. Lent started as kind of this cool period. I think it's a really great idea. Maybe you should think about this for people who want to get baptized, Rob. No one's going to get, want to get baptized after this, by the way. But <laughs> it started with this 40-day period leading up to somebody's baptism, which in the early church, most baptisms were done on Easter Sunday. So they would take a 40-day period leading up to that where they would fast and be in repentance and prayer and self-examination for that entire time so that they could really process what it meant to be able to go from death to life in that process of baptism, just joining with the sacrifice that Jesus did. 40 days of self-reflection. They were hardcore back then. But that was what, how Lent started. And eventually pastors were like, you know, this is actually a good idea for all of us to be doing on a regular basis. And so over the centuries, it kind of developed to become a more kind of formulaic, um, regular thing that we do. And this morning, I want to look at a conversation that Jesus has in Luke 18. So if you have your Bibles with you and you want to open up to that. Luke 18, verses 18 to 30. I saw some Bibles on the sides. If you want one of those, it'll also be on the screen. I feel that motion was very like uh, airplane stewardess. Sorry, I just realized that as I was doing it. On the sides right here. Um, wow, just distracting myself, but you're welcome there. That, that was good. But I want to look at this conversation that Jesus has with a young man who we're told three things about, that he's young, that he's rich, and they call him a ruler. We don't know much else about him. But this young man comes and asks Jesus a simple question, how do I gain eternal life? 
and Jesus gives him a really, really hard answer. He tells him that he has to give everything up, give all of his wealth away. And as we're in this period of looking ahead to the sacrifice that Jesus gives, I think that this is a good passage for us to reflect on this morning, to to look at the cost of following Jesus, the realities of it, that it's not always easy, that there are some difficult things that he calls us to, that that is a part of discipleship, of truly following Jesus. Not all of us are going to be asked to give up all of our money, thankfully. Um, It's kind of hard to pay rent if that's the case. But we are asked to give up something, And so I want to reflect on that this morning. So with that, let's read Luke 18. Begins in verse 18. It says, A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. No one is good except God alone. I always think that Jesus sounds super argumentative right here. Like, that seems unnecessary. Like, Jesus is just kind of poking at the guy a little bit. Like, it's a compliment to call somebody good. It's not bad. Um, So I was looking at that because it seems argumentative, and I wanted to understand what Jesus was getting at. And the word that the young man uses here is closely uh, aligned to the word throughout the Old Testament, the word good, that's used whenever somebody's talking about the Messiah, about the Savior, the Son of God. So this young man comes up and he calls Jesus this one version of good that in their language sounds really similar to how they would call the Messiah good. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Jesus wants to kind of poke at him a little bit and say, do you actually understand what it is that you're asking me, like what you're calling me? Do you understand what you're implying right now about who I am? He's wanting to dig in a little bit deeper, see what's going on in this guy's heart. Let's continue. He says, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and you have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. You know, Jesus never contradicts this guy's claim to obedience. He doesn't say, you're not actually as good as you think you are. He kind of, he just assumes that the guy's telling the truth. He knows that this guy is a good guy, that he does obey what it is that God asks him to obey. He assumes that to be the truth, that this guy really is what it is that he's claiming that he is. We'll come back to this, but I just want that to sink in a little bit. This isn't a bad person who Jesus is telling he needs to go another step. This is somebody who's a very good rule follower, who's doing what it is that he knew that he had to do. When he heard this, the young man, he became very sad because he was very wealthy And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? 
And Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. And truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. So before we continue, will you pray with me? Jesus, I just welcome you to come and to speak to us this morning. I just thank you for your presence that's here, for your word that you gave us, for your literal words that we can read and reflect on. And, and I pray that this morning, that you'll just open our hearts, help us to, to be able to hear you clearly, to hear the questions that you're asking us individually as we reflect on this. Give us a willingness to, to value your love and your truth much more than our comfort, than things that we don't want to let go of. Don't let us walk away from you sad. Let us walk away from you joyful because we're willing to, to let go of what it is that you've asked us to let go of, to follow you wholly. Give us grace to do that this morning and to hear you clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we continue, let's just acknowledge that this is a hard passage, right? This isn't one of the easy ones that Jesus gives where it's like, yes, I want to follow that guy. He's going, you know, he's bucking the system. He's, he's doing things that are fun to follow after. This is a difficult one. This pokes at his followers pretty clearly. He's calling us to something difficult. It's hard to hear. It's hard to wrap our minds around. It's hard to live out. And that's the reality of, of what Jesus is saying here. And following Jesus sometimes is difficult. Do you know that? It can just sometimes be difficult. Sometimes in America, I think we have our ideas of what difficult looks like when it comes to following Jesus versus, you know, other parts of the world. Um, but all of that aside, just the really kind of literal task of following Jesus is difficult because he asks us to do things like this, to live in ways that go opposite of how it is that we want to live, to do things that are different than what we would want to do. And so like Peter, we can often ask, okay, Jesus, then who can be saved? Who can do enough to follow you? Who can earn this? Which leads to my first point that you can never be good enough to gain salvation. You know, this young man isn't the first person that asked Jesus this exact same question in the book of Luke. If you were to flip back a couple of chapters to Luke 10, you hear another similarly uh, kind of affluent and influential person, a lawyer, asking Jesus this exact same question. And in that, Jesus gives a fairly different answer in some ways. Jesus tells him, you want to gain eternal life? Here's what you do. You love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, strength, with everything, and you love your neighbor as yourself. You do that, and everything else is wrapped up in those two things. A really powerful and amazing answer that Jesus gives to that lawyer at that point. And here, Jesus gives a different answer. And I think that there's a reason for that. Because I think 
that if Jesus would have told this young man that answer to the same exact question that we see in Luke 10, that this young man probably would have walked away and said, I've done it. I'm doing it. I, I, I love God completely. I love my neighbor as myself. I'm doing exactly what it is that he said that I needed to do in order to follow him, in order to gain eternal life. I'm there. I'm reaching it. He would have walked away feeling good about himself. And probably for the most part, that's great. That would have been positive for him. But Jesus knows that there's something underneath that that he needs to get at. And so he goes one step deeper and he says, do those things, that's good. But you also have to give up everything to follow me. And that was too much for this young man. You know, Jesus is very happy with us following rules. You know that? He's, he's good. He's happy with us being good moral people. I've heard some pastors say that Jesus came to kind of blow up the Ten Commandments and to, to just kind of change all of that completely, that we don't need to follow that in the same way. And I don't think that's completely true. If you actually read what Jesus tells us, he tells us that we need to live lives that are even kind of harder than what the Ten Commandments call us to live up to, instead of just don't murder, which, how many of us are fine with that? <laughs> All of you raise your hand, please. <laughs> That's not one that you can leave your hand down on. <laughs> We're all fine with not murdering. That's good. So then Jesus says, well, anytime that you hate somebody else, you're actually murdering them in your heart. He takes it one step underneath, one, one more notch deeper, and he digs underneath it and kind of enlarges what it means to live a good moral lifestyle. That's what Jesus does. But what we see here, Jesus is kind of going outside of that. And if you look at the list of commandments that he gives, he tells us to, you know, not murder, not steal, lie, all of that. Honor your father and your mother. That's not the entire list of the Ten Commandments. You realize that, right? He leaves out some very important commandments here. For instance, the first one. You know what the first commandment is? Mm-hmm. It's in Exodus 20, verse 3. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus left that out because I think he knew that this young man probably wasn't living completely up to that one. And he's making a point to us here that you can obey 90% of the commandments and you can still miss the first one. You can live a very good and moral life and still be missing the most important part of it, and that's loving God first and foremost. Jesus believes that this young man's telling the truth. He never argues with that. That's never his point in any of this. He believes that he's lived a good life that loves others well, that he is doing that part of it very well. But he's not loving God first. You can live a perfect, a near perfect life. You can obey most of the commandments. You can love others well. You can care for the poor. You cannot lie, steal, uh, murder, hate, uh, covet, lust. You cannot do any of those and still not gain eternal life, still not be following Jesus completely because. 
Although all of that is good, it's not enough. It's just not enough. You won't gain salvation. One theologian said that, in talking about this young man, that a person who leads an exemplary life, who even endears himself to the Son of God, can still be an idolater. You can do everything well and still not love God first and foremost. Perfection's not what Jesus is requiring. Morality's good, but it's not enough. So then how can we be saved? You know, one mistake that we can make as we read this that I think has been made a, a fair amount, and kind of rightly so, is that we can focus on the money, right? So does this mean if the young man was poor that he would have gained salvation? Could he have followed Jesus easier? That's not what Jesus is getting at here either. The issue wasn't his money. The issue was his heart. It was about him giving up the thing that he held closest, that he valued the most. It was about trust and love. That's what Jesus was digging into. Because following Jesus requires an all-embracing, all-encompassing commitment. It requires everything. And in fact, wealth is often seen throughout the Bible as a sign of God's blessing. We kind of shy away from that a little bit because of certain uh, theological values uh, that we see on TV a lot in Western culture. Uh, So we don't like to kind of admit that throughout most of the Old Testament that you knew somebody was doing what it is that God wanted them to do by the fact that they were wealthy. That was how they viewed it. That was... Solomon, David, there's lots of examples. One of the greatest examples of where this kind of conundrum starts to show up is with Job. Job, one of the more difficult books to get through sometimes, a little depressing at times. But in it, Job, we're told that he loved God better than anybody else in the world at that time. That's a pretty amazing statement, right? I would... Hey, if God said that about me, that would be quite an honor. Like, that's a pretty amazing value that he loved God better than anyone else. And so what happens to him? His kids die. His money and his possessions all disappear. And then on top of it, his health goes. So within like a two-week period, I think, he loses like every single thing in his life that he possibly could have. And at that point, his wife tells him that, she would be, that he would be better off if he just killed himself. That's rough. If Sarah told me that, that would be pretty hard. Like, well, you might have nothing else to go. Like, whoo, you don't want to be in Job's shoes. That's hard. And so then his friends show up. And you know what his friend's first thought was? The whole reason that this is happening. They never question if God's teaching him something. They just first and foremost go, you sinned. I don't know what you did, but it was bad. That's the only reason that this would happen. You screwed up big time, and I'm not standing around getting in the middle of that mess because I'm not going down with you. So you need to repent and give that up to God, and then everything in your life will be better. That was their immediate and constant reaction to it. And then God speaks, and God shows them pretty clearly that it's not a one-for-one thing. Wealth doesn't equal God's blessing. You can be poor and be blessed by God. 
You can be wealthy and be blessed by God. You can be wealthy and not be doing what God wants you to do. And you can be poor and not be doing what God wants you to do. God's blessing and his favor don't equal wealth or a lack of wealth. That's not at all what's going on. So God's not just, Jesus isn't focused on this guy being wealthy. He doesn't want to just take away his good stuff. And it's also not about generosity, although God loves generosity, right? And we love generosity. We love to see examples of really wealthy people giving away amazing amounts of money. Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. Do you know how much money combined they've given away in their lives? Any guesses? Not quite a trillion. I don't even know how many zeros that is. But yes, not quite that. Higher than 10 billion. $50 billion. That's amazing, right? That's huge. I will never be able to give away $50 billion simply because I will never have $50 billion to give away. That's just an outstanding amount of money. They're hugely generous. They care for others well, it seems like. They have a good value system with that. They're also still tremendously wealthy. Generosity is great, but it doesn't it's not all that Jesus is going to here. He's not worried about if the man has 50, million, 50 billion that he needs to give away at least 25 billion of it. It's not a percentage that Jesus is focused on. He doesn't want to see his financial statements. He's not worried about his end-of-year tax donations. Like he's, He doesn't care about any of that. It's not how much money he has. It's where his heart is. Jesus didn't want 10%. 20% or 30% of his heart. He wanted all of it. That's what Jesus is going at. Daryl Bach is a New Testament theologian, and he says that others passed the test not because they literally sold all, but because the direction of God became the central orientation of their lives. They had left all for the sake of the kingdom. The Direction of God became the central orientation of their lives. It's not about what percentage that you're willing to give away. It's about if you're doing what it is that God's asking you to do. It was never about his money. It was always about his heart. And we're told that because verse 23 tells us that he was very sad when he heard this. The message translates it this way. It says that he became terribly sad because he was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let them go. You know, we ask ourselves sometimes, uh, what do we love the most? How do we figure out what we love the most? What makes you the saddest to let go of? Your sadness will lead you to what you love. This young man was saddened by the reality that he had to give away the thing that mattered the most to him, and he couldn't do it. Tim Keller's a pastor and author, and he rephrased Jesus' comments to the young man this way. He said that you've put your faith and your trust in your wealth and accomplishments. Right now, God is your boss, but God is not your savior. And here's how you see it. I want you to imagine a life without money. I want you to imagine that it's all gone. No inheritance, no inventory, no servants, no mansions, 
all of that is gone and all you have is me. Can you live like that? Right now, God's your boss and God is not your savior. Is it possible that we can see God in that way? I've struggled with that. I struggle sometimes with hearing things like this in the Bible, reading these hard parts, and kind of my immediate attitude is just, well, you're God, so I guess I'll go through with it. If you ask me to do that, then I would obey you because you're God. That's God is my boss. There's not a lot of love behind that. There's just some obedience, which obedience is good, but it's not what Jesus came to bring. And if that's how we're viewing God in the requests that God makes, then we might want to step back and kind of re-examine our hearts a little bit, open ourselves up a little bit more. Because Jesus came to bring love. He leads us in love. He leads us to love. He wants us to love him. He, just, he doesn't want us to just have kind of a detached nine-to-five working relationship with him where we're okay with what he asks most of the time. We do what he says if it's necessary so we don't lose our job, but we're not necessarily happy about it. That's not what following Jesus is, and that's not why he came. He came to lead us into love. And he tells us that he knows that this is hard because he says that he gives us that really funny word picture, right? It's like it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. What in the world? (laughs) What is he going on about here? You know, pastors and theologians have really tried to figure this out really tried because everybody wants it to be possible right they they want it to actually be a physical thing that jesus is saying there's one way one way you can make it their their best guess which i think is still faulty but their best guess is that maybe there was a gate in jerusalem that was called the needle and it was very very thin And so if a camel without a person on its back or a pack on its back was shoved through with somebody pulling in front and pushing from behind, it would actually be able to make it through. You could thread the needle with the camel. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I think Jesus is flat out saying that it's impossible. You can't enter the kingdom of God on your own. It's physically impossible. There's no way that the largest animal in all of Israel could go through the smallest hole in all of Israel. This isn't Harry Potter. It's real life. It's not possible. You can't make it happen. Salvation is a gift, plain and simple. That's the answer. What's impossible for us is possible for God because Jesus made it possible. The only way that you can gain what he's asking for is by accepting it from Jesus, because Jesus has given so much more for us than we could ever give to him. Even if you were told, even if you're a billionaire and Jesus asked you to give away everything and you put it on a scale weighing the gift that Jesus has given to you and the billion dollars that you have in the bank account, it would, the scale would be so far in the favor of Jesus' gift that it's not even funny. You can't pay enough t- 
to equal it out. His gift is worth so much more. We're in this time of Lent looking forward. Rob mentioned looking at Easter in three weeks. We're looking at that gift kind of square in the face and remembering what it is that Jesus came to do. That he gave us his greatest gift that's made through the greatest love. That he gave it to us in one of the most painful and heartbreaking ways imaginable so that we could enter the kingdom of God. It's not a magic trick, but there is only one way through it, and we can't make it happen on our own. So as we come to an end, where do we, where do we go from here? What's Jesus saying to us today? Most of us don't have the wealth that this young man had, so that's not going to be the same request. But we also can't just enter the kingdom of God just by living really good lives. And we can't expect to enter the kingdom of God if we love something else more than we love Jesus. So how can we be saved? Love Jesus first and love him completely. Where's your heart at? Let Jesus be your savior. Not just your boss, not just the one you'll obey, but the one that you truly love and that you're truly grateful for the gift that he's given. And this morning, I'll ask the hard question. What's Jesus asking you to let go of? What's he requesting of you this morning? There's no way around it. He asks for a lot. It might not be a financial thing, but it may be. But he's asking for everything. He demands for us to, to reorient how we view everything in our life, to value money, houses, cars, possessions, our jobs and careers, our hobbies, even our vacations a little bit differently, to see it through his eyes instead of just through ours. And as much as it might hurt, and I do fully acknowledge that it may, if you want Jesus to be your Savior, you're going to have to let go of something. You can't keep holding on to everything the same way you did before and still follow Jesus. It's just the reality of it. Jesus is pretty clear about that all throughout the Gospels. It's not easy to follow him. You can't have two Saviors. So what are you holding on to this morning? I want to encourage you just to let go of the things that you're sad to let go of. And this morning, don't be afraid to let go of those things. Don't be afraid of what that can mean if you do. Do you trust and love Jesus enough to get rid of your safety nets? to get rid of the things that you want to hold on to in case it doesn't work out. I think Jesus says to all of us, just like he said to this young man, that all you have is me, and can you truly live that way? The worship team wants to come on up. As we spend some more time singing and worshiping this morning, I just want to invite you to allow Jesus to speak to you. To answer the question, what do, you, what do you want me, Jesus, to let go of? 
this morning? Is there anything I'm holding on to that's not the best, that I'm holding on to instead of you, that I'm holding on to in case it doesn't work out with you? And that's a reality that many of us go through off and on throughout your lives of following Jesus. It's not just a one-time thing. It's something that we can do often. So I just want to encourage you to allow Jesus to speak to you this morning. Allow him to point out what it is that he's wanting you to let go of so that you can more fully grab a hold of him. So during the time of worship, just allow Jesus to speak to you. At the end, I'll be back up to, to lead us in some prayer. But for now, just reflect on that. Amen.